There is no perfect church. We are not an exception to that. Throughout the history of the church, you cannot find a perfect church. You can find some churches that are doing a good job. You can find churches that are glorifying God. You can find churches that know their assignment and are living that assignment out, and yet those churches are not perfect churches. The same can be true for this church. Just in case you were wondering, I know some people get confused sometimes, although I'll be honest, I don't think it takes very long for you to be here to know that we're not a perfect church. And thank you for giving us grace in our imperfections. Every church has different struggles. Every church is tempted one way or another. And throughout the history of the church, the church can go through several different temptations. There are a temptation to, to live in the flesh, and as we studied through Galatians, the flesh can be legalism or it can be license. So that's a temptation for the church is to twist Scripture to justify our flesh, meaning we can twist Scripture to justify our legalism. And we see churches that give in to this and become rigid, legalistic churches that are full of hate and self-righteousness. But we see it the other way, where tw churches twist Scripture and live out of the flesh with license. And they give permission and license for you to live your life any way you want. But those aren't the only temptations within churches. Sometimes there's a temptation, and you find a church that is sound doctrinally, and they understand grace, and they know that they were saved by grace, and they know they can't earn their righteousness, and they know that you better not twist Scripture to bring in license either, and yet the love that they had for God at first begins to wear. And that passion that they had for the gospel begins to dissipate. And soon, although it's a doctrinally sound church, it's a lifeless church. Every church throughout the history of Christianity has struggled in some form or another with different temptations. We're coming upon a section in Revelation where it's the first vision, and John is caught up in a vision, and he's told to write to seven different churches, seven different letters. And each one of these churches has an issue. Now, it might be a weakness, it might be persecution, that each church has something going on in it where they need encouragement. And our temptation is either to look back in the past and say, well, that was just that church. Surely, our church knows better. Or we might look to the future and say, well, that's going to be something that happens in the future, and this church, the church in the future is going to have that struggle. But surely, we don't have that struggle right now. It is imperative for us to understand that every single struggle that we read through in these letters is a struggle and a temptation that our church will face. 
And so as we read through them, we need to ensure that we apply to our church today. We don't just say that was a past struggle, we don't have that problem, but instead say, what can I learn about this church and that church's struggle? And that's what we're going to start into today as we continue our hopeful study. So turn with me, if you will, to, to Revelation 2. We're going to start with the first letter to the first church. There are seven different churches that he will be writing to. We've already kind of covered what those churches are. And the fact that this that uh, seven is the number for completion or perfection. So really this isn't just to seven different churches, but it is to seven churches. And they all have an issue that we can apply to our church as well. Every church throughout the history of Christianity will have to struggle through these issues as well. And so our, our goal here is to say, how do we apply it to our life? Each letter kind of follows the same basic structure, an introduction. And then typically, not every single one of them, but almost all of them, they'll address a strength, and then God will address a weakness, and then give a challenge. You can break it down a little bit more, but that's how I like to break it down, with finishing off with a challenge and then a conclusion. So here we go. The church To the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do your works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right, there's a lot going on here, so let's dig in. He starts off with to the churches or to the angel of the church. Now, there's a lot of debate about what this means, who the angel is, and and it really forms along two lines. This angel is a spiritual being that is an angel over the church. Now, if we look through uh, scripture, we can find a couple pieces of evidence for that. But we also see that that angel in Greek simply means messenger. So it could just be a human being who is a messenger. So there's a little bit bit of a debate that goes on here. I think the main point that we need to understand is that there is a messenger that's going to deliver this message to the church. So we don't need to quite debate whether or not this is an angel or whether it's a human being. We know that it's a being that's going to bring this message to the church in Ephesus. That's what we need to understand. So there is a messenger that's going to bring this to the church in Ephesus. And so he's coming to Ephesus, and we have to understand a little bit about the church in Ephesus. And we need to understand about Ephesus in general. Ephesus was probably the most powerful city in Asia Minor. It was a wealthy city. It was a, it had a harbor, and it had three major trading routes that came that centered on it. So you would have the ships that were bringing in trade, 
They would disperse throughout the trading routes, but also the trading routes would bring in goods and bring them to the harbor, and then that would go out to Rome. So this was a very wealthy city and politically strong city. It had almost, it was almost as influential as any other city in the Roman Empire. The only city that had more certainly was Rome. But they were an influential city, a powerful city. The most, without a doubt, the most powerful city and influential city in Asia Minor. That's where these letters are all going to circulate, is in Asia Minor. So it's a powerful city, it's influential city, and it's got a temple dedicated to Artemis. Artemis was a goddess of fertility. It was known for this temple to Artemis. Artemis had a symbol that was a fig tree. No, sorry, a date tree. So this date tree was the symbol for Artemis. Ephesus was known for its wealth, for its political power and influence, and for Artemis. It was an important city, so important that when Paul was planting churches, he spent three years planting the church in Ephesus. So often when we read through Acts, and you can find that in Acts 19, so often when you read through Acts and you read about Paul's missionary journey someplace, we think like, oh, so he spent like a week in Ephesus and moved on. No, he spent three years planting the church in Ephesus. And it was a church that grew in God's grace. It became a very influential church. A church that other churches look to. A church that other churches might look at and say, that's how we should be doing things. There is a temptation that we Christians, I think just humanity has in general, to look how someone else has done things and say, they're successful. We should be like them. How many church movements have we seen throughout the American history, where we see a church and we see that they are successful in our American terms, and so we think, man, we should be more like that awesome church. And then it doesn't take long for something to come out about that church, because every church has flaws, and pretty soon it falls, and churches look to the next church. And we get caught up with this idea of influential churches, and we want to be like those influential churches. Now, I'm not saying we can't look at other churches and learn from other churches. We most certainly should look at other churches. But the bigger question we need to ask is, what is God's assignment for our church? Not what is God's assignment for Willow Creek or Mars Hill. Not what's God's assignment for Flag Naz. CCOF, what is God's assignment for our church? And how can we live that out? There are some great influential churches. I have good friends that are pastors at mega churches, and I believe that they know their assignment for God, and they are living that assignment out. That doesn't mean it's our assignment. 
So let's not look at some other church and say, what are they doing? How can we become more like them? Let us look at God and say, what is God's assignment for us and how can we live that assignment out? That's what we need to be doing. So it's a, a letter written to the church in Ephesus that is a great, influential, powerful church in a great, influential, powerful city. And he says, right, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now this is part of the introduction that we studied the last two weeks. So we studied the first part of the introduction and then the introduction into the vision. This is part of the introduction to the vision. Who is the one that holds the seven stars and the golden lampstands? That's Christ. So it is Christ writing to the church. He's saying, write this out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you dictate this letter for me because it's important that we address Ephesus. Now in each one of these letters, he's going to pull out another part of the introduction to the vision. And each one has a purpose. Each one has a meaning. What he's getting at here is that you think you're an influential, powerful church, but I'm the one that holds the seven stars and walks among the seven lampstands. The seven lampstands are the churches. And what he's saying here is, you may have influence, but I'm the one that everything should be centered on. There may be other churches that are influential, but Christ is the one that does the work. Christ and the gospel are the ones that changes hearts. It doesn't matter how great of a church you are, you cannot change someone's heart. That comes down to Christ and Christ alone. Don't get too big for your britches, essentially is what he's saying. You may think you're influential and powerful, but the only reason why you have any influence is because of Christ. Don't start thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. That's what he's saying right there in that introduction. Then he goes on, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. So the word I know here is oidos. A couple, maybe last year we talked a lot about the word gnosko, which is another word for knowledge. And that's a relational knowledge, gnosko. Oidos is, uh, is more of like a all-encompassing knowledge. And in particular in Revelation, it comes across as having like absolute knowledge. So we see that Christ has absolute knowledge of what they're doing. He has absolute knowledge over their works. It's not like they're doing some works that God just forgets about. He knows it without a doubt. And we can address that to ourselves as well. There's nothing you do that God doesn't know about. He knows all of your works. He knows it all. So I know your works. And then he describes the works that he knows of. He describes what they're doing in their works. Your toil. Toil here means distress and trouble. It's hard work in distress and trouble. And he knows it. They're a hard-working church. They've been distressed. There's trouble brewing. There is pressure to join the emperor cult. There is pressure to go to the temple of Artemis and worship the fertility god. He knows the pressure they're under. There is pressure in the American church. And there's pressure from all sorts of different sides. There's pressure 
to make politics an idol? On both sides of the aisle. There is pressure to affirm things we know the Bible does not affirm. There is pressure to worship comfort. There's all kinds of pressure. God knows the pressure we're under. He understands the pressure we're under. He actually knows it better than you and I know it. And we can find comfort in him. So he knows their toil and he knows their patient endurance. That although there is pressure, they are patiently enduring it. And, and patient endurance here, you could, you could define that as faithful obedience. That although there is pressure to conform, although there is pressure to change, they are faithful to the word of God, they are faithful to Christ, and that faithfulness produces obedience. And so they are an obedient church to the word. They are an obedient church to the assignment God has for them. So they're continuing in that obedience. They're continuing to walk in faith, even though the pressure is on. So he knows their toil, he knows their patient endurance, and he knows that they cannot bear with those who are evil. So they will not tolerate evil infiltrating the church. That's important for us to pick up on. That it's not letting evil infiltrate. That's one of the pressures that the church is under. To allow evil to penetrate. To infiltrate. But they will stand strong even in the midst of a corrupt culture. Even in the midst of a culture that wants them to conform. They will stand strong and not conform. And then he gives us Partly how they stand strong and partly how they do not conform, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So how do they withstand, how do they stand up to the evil that wants to infiltrate the church? Well, they test those who have called themselves apostles. So apostle in the New Testament church, apostle meant had kind of two meanings. Apostle simply means messenger sent with the authority of the sender. So if we had an apostle that was like a representative of the church, they would go with the authority of the church. So we belong to the IFCA, which is a fellowship of churches. Oftentimes Bob goes to the regional meetings. We might say that Bob is going to be our apostle. Simply meaning that he's going to go to the IFCA regional fellowship, regional meetings with the authority of the congregation. And we might bestow that authority upon him. He'd go and he'd speak on our behalf. That's one way you could use the term apostle. We see some, uh, some people get kind of confused, so we don't typically use that term. Because the other term for apostle is one who is sent with the authority of Jesus Christ. So, Could you imagine the power that you might have over a church if you walked into that church and you would say, hey, Jesus has sent me here with his authority to tell you guys what your assignment is. To, you know, correct you on your bad theology. That's a lot of authority. And if it's true, we'd want to listen to that apostle. 
So that's what's there. There were some false apostles that were going around both claiming the authority of a different church, though they did not have it, or claiming the authority of Jesus Christ, though they did not have it. Paul would call these, kind of mockingly call these apostles, super apostles. Because they went around trying to infiltrate the church and trying really to gain control and power over the church. And so they would call themselves apostles. They would latch onto this idea that I have authority from Jesus that you don't have. So what is John, or what is Christ really through John saying to the Ephesians? You've tested them. It is our duty, if we do not want to be infiltrated by evil, it is our duty to test others who are coming into the church that are trying to usurp power and authority over the church. One of the first tests, tests that we can make, I think, is why are you coming here in the first place? Is it just to yield or gain some authority? If you're just here to try to have authority over us, well, you might be barking up the wrong tree. But there are other ways that we can test. We can test what they have to say against Scripture. Is what you're saying, does that hold water with Scripture? There are several other ways that we're going to test, and I actually think that would be a good conversation for the ride home. So I'm going to leave that up on the ride home. Why don't you ask the question, what are ways that we can test those that are coming in that are trying to usurp authority? So that's what the Ephesian church has done. They're, they aren't letting evil infiltrate, and how they're not letting evil infiltrate is that they're testing those who are coming in. So they're testing them, and what they've found is that they're false. They're not true. Now, something else that kind of occurs, anybody that wants to come in and usurp power They'll do it, I think, oftentimes one of two ways. And one way is with the false doctrines that we've already talked about. They, they twist Scripture to create a false doctrine, and then they try to sell us on that false doctrine. Another way that people try to infiltrate and usurp power is by becoming what I call false doctrine hunters. You know the type that comes in, and they're on a hunt for anyone with false doctrine. And anytime someone disagrees with them, they're called a false teacher. And it could be about anything. You know, I mean, you might disagree with them on the color of the runner that comes down the middle of the sanctuary. And they find a way to make that a false teaching. And you have to be a heretic because you like green runners instead of red runners. You know what I'm saying? You've met this person. I'm sure you've met this person who is a false doctrine hunter. And their whole goal is to divide the church by saying, you've got a false doctrine, you've got a false doctrine, you've got a false doctrine, I'm the one with the real doctrine. And so how do we separate out? How do we know the difference between someone who teaches a false doctrine and someone who is a false doctrine hunter and someone who is legitimate? I think one of the ways that we can that we can find unity in this is to have unity in the essentials. That was part of the fundamental movement to begin with. See, the fundamental movement got hijacked by a bunch of legalists. But when the fundamental movement started, it was, hey, we need to find unity 
under the fundamentals. And so they developed five fundamentals that they could, they said, hey, if you buy into these five fundamentals, then we can partner together. The IFCA is an independent fundamental fellowship. And what they were doing was they were coming together saying, if you buy into these fundamentals, then we can partner. We can have huge different disagreements on, let's say, Calvinism or Arminianism. We can disagree on whether or not the sign gifts, whether or not speaking in tongues is for today. But we can still agree and find unity in the fundamentals of the faith, which are the inspiration, inerrancy, and sufficiency of Scripture. The virgin birth. The deity of Christ. The atoning death and the bodily resurrection. If you can buy into those five, we can partner together. But I'd also say, if you don't buy into those five, maybe you should question whether or not you're a Christian. That'd be like me saying, I love tacos. Anyone else in here love tacos? Man, I love, we, can, we can find some unity. We can bond over our love of tacos, right? I'm so excited because almost everybody raised their hand and we are, I'm stoked because we are going to unify under our love of tacos. So I don't, but I have to give you this disclaimer. I don't really like taco meat. And I don't really like salsa. And uh, I don't like cheese. And I don't like taco shells. What, so what I do is I take some tofu and I mix it around with like some mayonnaise and I put it on a slice of bread. And what are you thinking right now? That's not a taco, Aaron! Don't say you love tacos because that's not a taco! That's what it is. When you, when you say you're a Christian, you're saying, I believe in these fundamentals. Don't call yourself a Christian if you don't buy into these fundamentals. You're not a Christian. But in those fundamentals, we can find unity. And so someone disagrees with you on whether or not sign gifts are for today. That doesn't make them a heretic. It means that they have a different view, they have a different hermeneutic, maybe, but they, they can still agree on the fundamentals. So someone doesn't believe in your exact eschatology, meaning in study of end times, that doesn't necessarily make them a heretic. And we can still find unity and call each other brothers and sisters in Christ if we can come down to the fundamentals. So we don't need to be doctrine hunters. Now, don't get me wrong. Eschatology, ecclesiology, those are all important studies. And we should study them. And we should know what we believe about the end times. Or we should know what we believe about how the church operates. But just because you believe that church governance should be a more Presbyterian style than congregation style, that doesn't mean you're a heretic. And that I shouldn't fellowship with you at all. Just because you believe that sign gifts are for today and speak in tongues doesn't mean I should call you a heretic and say I'll never call you a brother or sister in Christ. The problem with doctrine hunters is oftentimes they end up living a very lonely life. Because let's face it, the only one that has the exact same doctrine as me is me. And to be honest with you, I'm not even sure I have the same doctrine of me. Because I, if I am reading Scripture with humility, then good chances are, when I come upon some new evidence, 
it will most likely change my ideas about certain areas of God. If I'm so rigid in my doctrine that not even the Bible can change my mind, then my doctrine is off. So, so that's how that's one way that we can test them. That's one way that we can find whether or not they're coming in just to usurp some power and authority over us and divide and split the church. So that's what they're doing. They're not, they're not allowing evil to come in. They're not allowing evil people to come in and split the church. And then he, he continues, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And what he's saying is that you're continuing strong. You continue to do the work that I've called you to do. You know your assignment, and you're continuing to work out that assignment. It's amazing. It's an awesome thing. And then he gives them a warning. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And at this point, you might be thinking, well, what's going on? He, he just commended them. Commended them for, for walking in their assignments, for doing good works. And they have continued to do the good works. They have continued to not tolerate evil but what they have started to do is go through the motions. Sometimes it is easy for a church to start to go through the motions. The church at Ephesus, Paul went and he planted this church and they started to grow in grace and they started to grow in the love of God and they had a passion and a zeal to continue to know Him. And two years later, this is kind of crazy, and I think it will blow a lot of people's minds. Two years later, they get convicted about witchcraft. So think about that for a second. For two years, they loved God. For two years, they were growing in the grace of God. And at two, the two-year mark is when they say, wait a second, this witchcraft thing, that's not right. And so what do they do? They go and burn all of their books not all, the, all their witchcraft books. They go and burn it all. Million, what would be considered today's uh, dollar, millions of dollars of witchcraft books. That's a love for God. Now some of you might be thinking, well wait, it took them two years? But even in those two years, they were still considered to have a love of God. They were still considered saints and holy. And some of us sometimes want to twist Scripture and say, unless you look like me in my walk, you're not holy. Unless you look like me in my walk, you're not really loving God. And we forget that God convicts us of sin on His timeline, not on my timeline. So there are things in my life, I know there are some sins in my life that I haven't even recognized yet that at some moment God is going to convict me of. I can remember when I first started obeying God and, and, and submitting my life to God, and I would still watch rated R movies because I, I hadn't been convicted. I didn't even realize that, they, that for me, it wasn't okay. And I can remember Jen and I getting married and watching a rated R movie together and just being like, man, this just doesn't, this doesn't feel right. And God convicting us at that moment. And we just decided, you know, we're not going to watch rated R movies anymore. That's just it. That's a line that we draw. 
there are blind spots in your life. Maybe God hasn't convicted you of it yet. But if you continue to grow in His grace, He will convict you on your, I should say on His, timeline. The problem we run into as Christians is we want others to look like we look. Instead of letting people grow in God's grace on God's timeline. For two years. Think about that. Two years they hung on to books of witchcraft. But when God convicted them that it was wrong, what did they do? They burnt them. They didn't turn back. When God convicts you, what do you do? Do you hold on to your sin? Are you like, but God, you know, I realize that this is this is wrong. I finally realized this is wrong, God. But, you know, I've done it for the last two years. It's okay. Or do you say, God, my love for you is so deep that when you tell me it's wrong, I'm going to get rid of it. So they had an intense love for God. A love that topped everything else. That when God said, hey, witchcraft is wrong, boom, witchcraft was gone. And then he gives them a challenge. And this challenge is also advice on how they can regain that love. And he starts it off with remember. Remember. This term remember really means to recall and respond. It's not just like walk down memory lane and weep because you're not there anymore. Which can be very easily done, right? You can look back on certain events in your life with fondness, but also you can easily become desperate in that memory because you're not there anymore. So it's not just look back, but it's look back and respond. Remember, look back and respond, therefore, from where you have fallen. So what he's saying is, look back to that love that you first had. Remember when I convicted you of, of the witchcraft books and you just took them and you burnt them and you were so excited to burn those witchcraft books. Remember how much you loved me? I think of it often as dating. When you get married, do you stop dating? You shouldn't. You should just date your wife. Husbands, do you date your wife? You should. If you haven't taken your wife out on a date, I challenge you to get a babysitter and go take your wife out on a date. And on that date, remember those first few months of when you fell in love. Remind yourselves. Remind each other about what that felt like. That's one of the ways to stay in a passionate marriage. If you don't Recall these things. If you don't remind each other, I can remember my grandpa in his 90s. Would, uh, you would, it was almost fun to ask him about the day he met my grandma because there would become this little spark and twinkle in his eye and he'd say, you know, I stopped off at a gas station and I saw the most beautiful woman in the world. Remind yourself of that love that you had at first. Do not neglect that memory. Date your wife. So remember it, and then he says, repent. 
and do the works you did at first. So there's three ways to, to rekindle that love. To remember what it was like at first, and then to repent. If you've started to fall away, repent. When it comes to our relationship with God, remind yourself of, of that love that you used to have for God. And then, if you've fallen away, repent. If You can say, God, I've lost my zeal for You. I've lost my passion for You. And the term repent means to do a 180. So if you've been walking in a passionless relationship with God, it means to turn around and reignite that passion you have with God. One of the ways you can do that, well, he gives it right here. Do the works you did at first. What were the things they were doing at first? They were submitting to Him. They were worshiping Him. It's so easy for us to come on a Sunday morning and go through the motions of worship, but not really submit our heart in worship to God. So he's saying, do those works. Remember to submit your life to Him. Don't just go through the motions. And then he gives a warning. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And that's a strong warning. What the lampstand means here is not necessarily their salvation, but that he will remove their influence in Asia Minor. So we remember that this was a, a church with incredible influence in Asia Minor. And what he's warning them of is if you do not repent, that influence that you've enjoyed will no longer be there. That influence that you have wielded you will no longer have. You will no longer be a light in that dark area of the world. It's important for us to remind ourselves of this as well. If we lose our love for God, which by the way, the only way we can truly love each other is by first being fully engaged in love of God. And if we lose that vertical love of God, then we'll lose our horizontal love and we will no longer be a light in a dark area. Jen loves to talk about how Flagstaff is considered a dark city. And man, is that symbolic or what? I mean, we are a dark city. We've got to keep the lights low at night. But we're also living in a dark area spiritually. And if we can continue to love God and submit to God, He will make us shine bright in this spiritually dark land. And we can be this amazing light for people to come to. But if we lose our love for God, we will be a dark church in a dark city. And that does no one any good. And then he goes on, yet, he gives them a little bit more encouragement, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, who I, which I also hate. There's a lot of debate about what those works are, who are these people, and there's no real solid evidence, which is one of the reasons why the debate rages. And, and I'd just say this, the works of the Nicolaitans are people that twist God's grace. So we, we could get into the, all the ins and outs of how they might twist God's grace, but we can just boil it down to that. These are people who twist God's grace. And the church at Ephesus hated that work, 
They knew that God's grace was so important to living out our salvation that they hated that anyone would twist God's grace. And we need to remind ourselves of that as well, that we need to hold on to God's grace fast, and anyone that twists that is wrong. And then he gives them, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hear, hear means to listen and obey. So it's not just listening, but listen and obey what the Spirit says. It is easy for us to begin to harden our heart to the Spirit's conviction in our life. Man, how easily can we justify what we do? And that's what he's getting at here. We need to have soft hearts to the Holy Spirit's conviction in our life. The Holy Spirit, I know, is convicting you of something today. Are you softening your heart and listening to that conviction? Or are you hardening your heart against what the Holy Spirit has to say to you? To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the, par- in the paradise of God. The, the one who conquers, uh, to conquer means to have victory in, or to have victory over a foe. And we might boil this down to we need to be the ones that are victorious and would be reading that wrong. The one who conquers is the one who is found in Christ because Christ is already victorious. So Christ has already conquered evil. Christ has already conquered sin. And so how do we become conquerors? Well, we put our faith and trust in the one who's already conquered. You and I cannot conquer sin. You and I cannot conquer evil on our own. It is only by being found in Christ and confessing that we cannot, but Christ can. That we become victorious. We are victorious because He has given us the victory. And we need to recognize that as well because until we recognize that, sin will always be the victor over us. If you've ever wondered why you keep returning to the sin that you hate, that thing that you know you hate to do and you feel so much shame when you do it. But yet you keep coming back. The reason why is because you haven't recognized the victory that is in Christ. But when you put your faith and trust in Christ, He frees you from sin. So how do we live the victorious life? We keep coming back and reminding ourselves of what Christ has done in us. That He has called us righteous and holy. That He has freed us from the bonds of sin. So we no longer need to be slaves of sin, but can be free in Christ. So those who are conquerors, those who are found in Christ, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. And this is in direct contrast. The the church of Ephesus would have read this and thought right away of Artemis, who was the goddess of fertility, represented by the date tree. And the idea in Ephesus was Artemis was the one who gave life. And they would read this and they would know that the one who gives real life is Christ. Christ is the one who is victorious. Christ is the one who gives life. It's not Artemis. It's not some influential church. 
We gather together as a church not to give life, but to remind each other of the life that God has already given us, to remind each other of the victory we already have in Christ. And as we do that, we live the victorious life. Dear Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have already conquered, You are already victorious, so that we can live in victory. We don't need to be slaves to sin anymore, but we can live in freedom from sin in You. And Lord, we recognize that too often we let pressure from one side or the other start to shape and mold us. Lord, we pray that You would help us to continue to return to Your Word. That we would continue to grow in the victory that You have handed us. In Your name we pray. Amen.